I'm Mark Lynch, Director of the Project on Middle East Political Science. Welcome to the Middle East Political Science Podcast. On this week's episode, we talk to Andrea Wright about her new book, Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil. We also talk to Basilia Zeno about his new article about boundary making and the sectarianization of the Syrian uprising. And finally, we check in with Renaud Mansour about the current problems in the Iraqi government formation process and the prospect for political change in Iraq. Thanks for listening to our program. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's book episode, we talk to Andrea Wright, William and Mary, about her new book, Between Dreams and Ghosts, Indian Migration and Middle Eastern Oil, just published by Stanford University Press. Uh, Andrea, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. So tell us a little bit about this book. So this book looks at the process of Indian labor migration um, to work at oil projects in the countries of the Arabic-speaking Gulf. And so uh the focus is on the almost 1 million men who travel annually to work as laborers um, in oil projects and how their experiences in India and in the Gulf. And so you, you came to this project um, from India. I did, I did. I started um, when I um, was studying Urdu and Hindi in India, I was, um, I had a long, I was taking a trip to visit a friend in Beirut and I had a long layover in um, Dubai and I didn't know what to do at the time. It was two, um, I think 2006 or seven. And I um, got out of the airport and got into a taxi. And I said to the taxi driver in English, you know, I'd like to go to the mall because that was the only thing I knew of in Dubai. And the taxi driver said, you know, he didn't understand my English. And I asked in Arabic and he said he didn't speak Arabic. And at the time I, um, my stipend was in rupees. And so I was becoming very anxious as the taxi meter was ticking higher and higher. And um, my, um, and I felt frustrated and I asked in English and Arabic and again, and, um, and then finally I um, asked in Hindi and the taxi driver stopped and he said, why, why do you speak Hindi? And, and I said, well, I live in Lucknow, which is a city in um, Northern India. And he said, well, I'm from a village in Lucknow. And so it ended up that um, I spent time talking with the taxi driver and then I met some of his friends who are also from near Lucknow in India. And I became really interested in this, these large numbers of um, people, largely men who work as um, laborers in the Gulf. And that's what began the mm-hmm. project. And, and mostly you focus on kind of skilled, skilled and semi-skilled laborers, people working in the, um, in, in the oil fields and uh, the oil industry. So yeah, largely it's about um, people who work in the oil industry and who um, work as laborers and um, like semi-skilled is what the government officially calls that um, category. And that might be um, Mm -hmm. people who pull wires through rigs or who um, build scaffolding. Um, Spray painters would be another category. Um, And my sites are largely in, in the Gulf, they're um, place construction sites, so sites where like um, offshore oil rigs are being built or at factories that supply parts for these um, construction projects. Um, and in India, my research sites include both the villages um, from where men um, are migrating, but also the um, recruiting agency offices and recruiting agents work as intermediaries between oil companies that wanna hire um, Indian workers and Indian workers who are looking for jobs. And those, the recruiting agencies are largely based in Mumbai, which is um, you know, on the Arabian mm-hmm. Sea as well. And they're regulated by the um, Indian government. So I did some research in the government offices as well, trying to understand how um, the process of migration is structured. Well, it's interesting because in, I think in the Middle East studies field, uh, there's been a, a lot of like really interesting work, especially in anthropology, about the, the labor side of it within the Gulf. But it's, it's really unusual, at least for me, to see the connections drawn from here back to India and, uh, you know, the sending side of all of this. Yeah, I, um, I mean, and I'm certainly building on, you know, work by Andrew Gardner, Neha Vora's excellent work mm-hmm. on um, Indians in particular in the Gulf. And um, I guess one of the things I found really exciting about expanding it to look at both um, India and the Gulf is that it, it just expands the number of actors that are actually involved in the um, 
production of oil. And it, it expands it both to like include then government bureaucrats or officials who are regulating Indian immigration, but also on the Gulf side, like the Gulf states that are regulating immigration and, you know, thinking about mm-hmm. how we actually move manpower from one place to another. Um, it makes it less abstract. I, I, hopefully, yes. That's, no, the, the book is really interesting because it's so concrete and you're sitting there in the recruiting agent's office and watching the interviews and talking to the men who, as they're trying to navigate this process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's, um, it was really a, um, a, being able to do research in recruiting agency offices was really great. When I began my research, it was really hard at first to um, get access to recruiting agencies. And so um, once I was able to meet um, some recruiting agents um, through uh, um, some volunteer volunteer associations or like uh, charity work, mm-hmm. um, that was really useful for understanding how large numbers of workers are moved and also the histories of these recruiting agencies where um, many of them have families that have had, um, conducted trade with the Gulf for you know multiple generations. And so it's um, builds upon these earlier histories and circulations. Um, which yeah, I, that, 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 like, that, like I said, it makes it concrete in terms of how do people from villages in Northern India find a place in Kuwait or a place in Saudi Arabia that needs work. Right, right. And so, um, and that's both like included going on trips to places in, in Northern India, which is in part because of my linguistic ability. And so in Northern India, um, people tend to speak um, Hindi or a language, a language close to Hindi, um, whereas in the South, the language is quite different. So a lot of my research is in the North because of my language abilities, but also, um, or my previous mm-hmm. language study, but also because as um, oil companies and other uh, companies are looking for workers that will take the um, lowest paid jobs, right? So they, you don't want to pay more then um, they have to move to increasingly rural areas. And so um, it moved from historically a lot of laborers coming, um, traveling from the south of India to now more workers traveling from northern India. Um, and the thought is because the remittances that were sent to the south helped improve education levels. And so people wanted better paying jobs to mm-hmm. do that. Um, and now uh, many men come from some of the most economically depressed states in India, uh, which would in the northeast, like Bihar, Uttar Pradesh, or Jharkhand. And many of them um, work small plots of land, but the land's not enough to uh, for their families to survive really. And they might, they contract themselves. They work as like contract workers or casual laborers making maybe $2 or $3 a day in India. Um, so going to the Gulf allows for them to make just lar- like much more money and really um, help support their families, which um, is really useful both um, for improving their families like standard of living, but also because often they're already in large amounts of debt. And so it's, um, yeah, so working in the Gulf is seen as an avenue. That, that's one part which really jumped out at me is how much debt they need to take on even to get these jobs, to apply for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's so much competition for jobs. And um, I would go to uh, interview sites in Mumbai where there would be, they perhaps a company would be hiring 100 workers, um, but a 1,000 men could easily show up for um, interviews. And of course, uh, a few... Uh, oil company human resources managers can't see a thousand men in a day, no matter you know how much they do. And um, so workers often, um, what they say is they like cultivate influential relationships or networks with um, people who can help them acquire these jobs because there's so much competition and desire for them, especially for good jobs. And, um, and while the Indian government allows recruiting agents to uh, legally charge a certain amount of money about uh, 20,000 rupees when I was doing research to um, help, they, that's legally allowed for recruiting agents to charge. Often uh, migrants or prospective migrants uh, pay lots of other people money trying to just to get into a job interview or find a job. And so they could end up um, borrowing, you know, 100,000 rupees or 120,000 rupees, which is a huge amount of debt for their families to um, pay off without working in golf. So, um, and often they borrow, they may end up borrowing this money from local uh, money lenders who charge high interest rates. So it's, it's mm-hmm. a hard amount of money to pay off and it um, tends to extend for a long time. So workers often spend their first, um, co- like first contract or their first second contract, which is maybe workers go for two or three year contracts. Um, 
try just paying off this debt before they can mm -hmm. um, perhaps do things like build a house made out of bricks, you know, as opposed to a house made out of mud and thatch or a, um, or, you know, buy some farming land or something. So. Or acquire gold for, uh, for their sisters. Yeah. Gold for their sisters dowries, which is a really um, strong motivator. And something I, I write about like a chapter in the book is mm -hmm. um, when I, men had many reasons that they go. And this is of course, when I'm talking about these unskilled laborers, it's all men because um, uh, in India, emigration permission is required if you haven't gone through 10th grade. Um, but for women who are under the age of 30, it's almost impossible to migrate. And so um, the met, the people with whom I work are mostly men, or all men, and um, also oil projects and construction projects tend to be staffed by men. But so men would go and say they're doing this to be um, a good brother or a good father. And one of the reasons is purchasing gold that's used in women's dowries or the gifts given from the bride's family to the groom's family when at the time of marriage and they um and brothers see it as their way of um helping their sisters get married by buying this gold and even though gold is dowry is technically illegal in india it's a practice that many um migrants were really excited that they could afford to participate in and something they couldn't actually participate in um, without migrating to the gulf and they saw it as a way to ensure that their sister um, has a good match or finds a good husband, um, perhaps uh, provides some social mobility and helps maintain um, these familial relationships. And it's important in a context where there's such high unemployment. So um, brothers are unable to fulfill these familial obligations without you know, migrating because um, there's not the jobs to have the income to buy the gold. I, I thought it was interesting. You mentioned that recruiters, if they see a man uh, who, you know, he, he has two nice shoes or he's too well-dressed, they would take that as a bad sign because he's not, you know, being a good, a good son or a good brother and, and sending all of his, uh, his wages back to his home. Yeah, yeah, no, that is um, definitely true. There is a lot of, I mean, so when you're doing ethnographic research, which mm -hmm. is what I did, and you sit with people all day, you know, people gossip a lot about everything, right? And um, everywhere, or at least everywhere I do research, including the U.S., but um I was sitting with um, a group of uh, recruiters one day when we were, there was interviews going on and um, we had taken a break and we're having lunch and a group of men walked in who had worked in the Gulf before. And it was clear they'd worked in the Gulf because they were, you know, wearing shiny shirts and fancy shoes and, you know, things that would be hard to afford, I guess, without working in the Gulf. And everyone had just, just decided that they had not spent their money um, correctly at all because clearly they had bought, you know, these fancy clothes and not sent their money home to their fathers or, you know, helped buy gold for their sister's dowries. And um, in part of the title of the book, which is about ghosts, comes from some of the stories that I heard around people who didn't tell their, like, who didn't fulfill their family obligations. And so um, while this, when this happened, uh, one of the recruiters turned to me and told me a story about a man who'd forgotten the commitments he had in India and how, um, this ended up this ended up causing a premature death on his end, and he ran into a, a ghost of the a woman who he'd broken up an engagement with, and um, and so ghost stories became one of the ways that um, people both talked about the importance of maintaining or fulfilling one's obligations, but also uh, situated their migration within um, their family life and their contemporary um, world. Mm -hmm experiences. That's really interesting. I actually wanted to ask you about that, about the title of the book, Between Dreams and Ghosts. And maybe you could explain a little bit, just like keep explaining a bit, like where this comes from and the significance of, of the title. Great. So, um, so dream, so I guess to continue with ghosts, there's both these ghost stories, but then I, I also talk about ghosts as these um, uh, pasts that continue into the present and the power of um, historic I guess, um, structures and institutions to endure. Uh, and this, so it includes things like colonial capitalism and how the um, ways that the British, um, which the India was a uh, British, part of the British empire until 1947. So, but the ways in which the British in the um, 1800s um, regulated indentured migration out of India became, um, used in the 1900s as a way to move workers out of India to work at oil projects in the Gulf when the mm -hmm. British were beginning to explore the region. So um, ghosts has multiple meanings there and dreams largely comes from people's hopes for the future and why. And often when I would talk to men, 
you know, I would say, well, why do you want to work in the golf? And, you know, it was really common to say, oh, my dream has always been to work in the golf. And people would talk about is their dream of flying in an airplane or being able to um, purchase material goods. They would also, um, and sometimes it was talked about in terms of fulfilling family obligations. At other times it was talked about as like making India modern was an idea that was very popular mm -hmm. among workers. And this idea of modernity, of course, was complicated and included both things like material infrastructure, but also things like ideas like freedom and being able to do what you want and marry who you want and things. And so um, there's that type of dream, but, and then there's also other dreams, like the dreams of recruiting agents who want to, you know, um, build their businesses or of oil companies that are developing um, projects. And so I thought dreams and ghosts became uh, two terms that were used by a lot of the interlocutors or people with whom I spoke to describe um, what they were doing and um, helped coordinate their activities in some ways. Um, but then you know, they have their dreams, but then as you described, the material conditions they find when they go to work in the Gulf are, are you know, appalling. It's incredibly difficult. And uh, the, the sheer number of people who die every day um, is, is astonishing. And the conditions that they live in and the, the way that they're you know, segmented from the rest of society um, so how, talk about that a little bit and kind of the gap between, you know, the dreams of these men hoping to go there and then the lived experience they have once they arrive. Right. So for, um, yeah, I think most men, especially their first time traveling, when they arrive in the Gulf, the, it's much harder than they thought it would be. Even um, when uh, people have great employers, they still work long hours, often overtime is like uh, required contractually. Um, they live in camps that are far away from the rest of the city. And then there's um, ways in which uh, social spaces are policed. So people aren't necessarily, um, they, um, men can't like travel around and nor do they have the extra money to. Um, and so, uh, you know, in the worst, in the worst cases, there's um, experiences like uh, the people who are killed on job sites and often, um, those are, you know, of course, the most vulnerable workers uh, anyway. And then there's also, I talk about um, abandoned camps, which are, um, when I was doing my research in um, uh, the United Arab Emirates in 2010 and 11, um, it was relatively, you know, it was shortly after the financial global recession. And um, at the time, a large numbers of uh, company owners had like fled the, the Emirates um, fearing debtor's prison, I was told. And so there was um, what they would leave and their employees hadn't many, some of them hadn't been paid and they were living in camps. And because their, um, they, their employer stopped paying for their rents, there was no like electricity in the camps or water and they were or food and they were largely dependent upon neighboring camps to um, help provide um, just those basic like workers in neighboring camps just to provide those basic, you know, daily needs. Um, and so those types of situations, while more common, um, I think around 2010, still show up in the news and things. And we also, I think, you know, reading the news about people not being paid or losing their passports and things. And so um, there's these uh, really extreme circumstances that workers can find themselves in. And um, this is a, um, a reality for some, and and even though workers know that this is a possibility, often they still, I mean, even though men, the migrants know that this is a possibility, they still very much want to work in the Gulf um, because of both these right. um, social reasons and economic reasons that um, help uh, inform their decision to go. Now, you, you talk about the, the immigration process through a language of neoliberalism and neoliberalization, uh, of work. So what exactly do you mean by that? And how does it fit into the story that you're telling? Great. So I think I'm, you know, I'm trying to be specific about neoliberal, my use of like neoliberalization or whatever, you know, to both being the ways in which um, certain government services become privatized and also how it impacts how we understand individuals. And so one of the things that I found striking that was common in multiple sites is this idea of individuals as entrepreneurs, right? And so this is both like migrants or entrepreneurs who are trying to um, have a better life or um, and the Indian government wants to cultivate entrepreneurial migrants because it sees that as a person who would work hard and try to move up in the world and be a good reflection on India's brand. 
um, which I guess brand is probably another neoliberal mm -hmm. um, um, emergence. And then um, even in the Gulf with um, the voluntary, the people who were donating money and food that were middle and upper class Indians and Pakistanis who were trying to help men in abandoned camps, they also felt like uh, workers in abandoned camps should cultivate an entrepreneurial spirit and that would help them, you know, get out of these situations. And so um, one of the, and this is of course, as opposed to like expecting government services to help provide or government regulations to provide certain um, standards. And this is, um, I think that narrative perhaps misses some of the lived realities of like migrants themselves and the constraint, like the constrained circumstances from which they make choices as well as um, helps move the risk onto individuals and migrants or like perhaps not being properly entrepreneurial as opposed to um, companies perhaps that could provide um, some that are no longer need to provide certain um, like pensions or uh, other uh, right. pr uh, protections for their workers. Well, then let's focus on one of the really, I think, novel and interesting parts of the book, which is looking at the recruiting agents themselves and, you know, how they make these choices and what they're actually doing when they're selecting men and sending them on to these uh, oil fields. Right. So for recruiting agents themselves, they very much are interested in um, uh, having a good brand, both for themselves, like, and this is, this brand is both like branding their company because they mm -hmm. want to attract other work from other companies, as well as um, this idea of branding in India's image abroad. And this is a place where government um, government bureaucrats and recruiting agents converge, is be like in this idea of India's brand image abroad, in which there is a concern that migrants to the Gulf, and particularly these um, unskilled or semi-skilled workers or men who are going to, who um, require immigration permission, um, that they could possibly be, um, negatively reflect on India's brand image because both the conditions in the Gulf are precarious and workers are not as um, educated as, and they would contrast um, Indians who are migrating to work as laborers in the Gulf with Indians who work as doctors or CEOs of corporations in the United States. And this idea that, um, you know, it was a fear that it would make India look um, bad if uh, they were, too many poor Indians were um, in the Gulf and especially if they didn't have jobs. And so this was, um, became both an important place where uh, recruiters and um, government bureaucrats could work together in trying to regulate immigration and um, help uh, maintaining India's brand image, but also this idea that a good Indian migrant would be entrepreneurial or would be a person who would, um, you know, want to work hard and come up and not cause problems, like not, you know, try to unionize, but rather would, you know, have a, an ethos of individualized, um, you know, hard work that would uh, lead to advancement and that through hard work and um, learning the right skills, uh, people could um, then get better jobs. And this was for recruiting agents, you know, they wanted then to select uh, workers that they saw with these um, attributes in that. Um, but of course, like many Things this often reinforces implicit biases people may have against either um, Muslims, which are a religious minority in India, or against people who are from uh, castes or um, that are lower in India. So in the Hindu, I, I guess all major religions in India have castes, but you know they, they who are lower. So it's socially right. So then, when so the recruiting agents, then as you said, you know, they might have a thousand people coming, showing up looking for a hundred jobs. And, you know, and it's really interesting. You talk about them testing, um, you know, both, both, you know, paper tests, but also like professional testing, but also about other things that make certain people stand out over others. Right. And so, and sometimes that both had to do with um, one's, you know, entrepreneurial spirit. And there's of course the bad standing out, like, you know, having too flashy of shoes, but then there's also who one arrives with. And this goes, I think, back to the debt and borrowing money and the idea that, um, you know, workers would uh, make connections with someone who's a sub-agent, which is technically an occupation that's illegal in India, but are um, really prevalent, were very prevalent throughout my research. Um, and sub-agents who had connections with workers and recruiting agencies would be able to, uh, you know, get 
through their friends who are recruiting agency employees, you know, have workers um, or prospective migrants be seen um, more quickly and have a higher rates of um, people being um, hired than if a man just shows up by himself, who would have to like wait in line. And so it's through these um, relationships that people cultivate that are these networks that people um, build that uh, a migrant's success or failure, um, I guess, is determined largely. And so you might have someone who, uh, you know, has marginal skills, but a good network being chosen over someone with more experience and more skills, um, but out of network. It, yes, exactly. And it's hard, you know, in some of the jobs, uh, you know, so some, some things are, of course, very skilled and technical, you know, like requiring reading blueprints or understanding what mm -hmm. inches or centimeters are. Um, but other jobs, you know, may re require only carrying heavy loads across, you know, yards or may... Um, involve pulling wires, you know, through, which is, and I remember watching interviews where they would time people to see who could pull wires, to fat, most, who are the fastest pulling wires through tubes, um, you know, just as a way of seeing skill, but um, perhaps not a complete snapshot of one right, skill. Right, right. Yeah. Because the recruiting agents, they want to be known as providing good workers. Exactly. And, so you know, and they're, they're both, they're being tested on both ends. Mm -hmm. They, yeah, they want to, um, send workers abroad who, you know, send workers to the Gulf who do good work so that they can then have a, another contract with, you know, the energy right. companies that they work with. Now, you, you make a point, you mentioned this earlier in our conversation, but I wanted to come back to it. Uh, the idea that there's these kind of connections or legacies from the colonial era up to the present in terms of how these migrants are regulated. Can you talk about that just a little bit more? Because I found it really interesting. Yeah. So, um, so for the regulation of Indian immigration and the rules, these emerge um, in the 1800s when the British government is trying to regulate indenture, of course, because they want to make sure that indenture is not a new form of slavery, but rather people are going of their own free will. And so what happens in that moment is that contracts become the key uh, moment. So uh, the British government sets up in India the system of um, the protector of immigrant system, which is supposed to make sure that people sign their contracts freely and that the contracts are, um, you know, uh, have certain basic parameters. And this system um, continues today. There's been um, some, there's a change uh, in the early, in the first quarter of the, in 1922, it changes after um, indenture becomes illegal out of India, but this basic system maintains stays the same. And on the Gulf side, there's, um, I, we also see the influence of um, the British imperial presence, both in um, how workers are managed and how labor laws are being written and things. And so this, um, I, you know, so there's this, like, I think enduring legacy of uh, British colonialism that in, like in structuring government institutions, but also, um, it's not just British colonialism, of course. There's also, you know, histories of trade and other movements that are informing it. And also, the the what must what apparently was a scarring experience of uh, labor activism and um, and strikes back in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, which they wanted to make sure never happened again. Definitely. I mean, it was so in the 1960s. There's a um, you know series. There's strikes. You know, for example, in Abu Dhabi in 1963 that the um, government is the British, both the British government as well as the um, Abu Dhabi government is, are like really unable to stop. The police showed up and they began rubbing noses with the strikers and joined in because these are local workers who are striking, wanting better wages and um, job advancement. And what ends up happening is there's a move to hiring more and more Indians and Pakistanis because they can be fired without any repercussion. It does, there's no political blowback for um firing um, Indian and Pakistani workers. And so this um, influences the, uh, uh, I, I believe that it influences the contemporary um, numbers of Indians and Pakistanis who work in the oil industry. One last question. Um, uh, you mentioned that these are overwhelmingly men who are working, and there's actually some extended discussion in the book about uh, about why women are not allowed uh, to migrate in this way. Talk about that just a little bit. Great. So um, there's a, one of the reasons was, um, so when I, so women do migrate to the Gulf and of course, like, well, better educated women um, from India may migrate as nurses or doctors or, you know, high ranking managers, but at this, um, uh, for 
like unskilled worker. Um, some women migrate as um, maids or nannies or to do domestic labor. And when I began my research, I was like, I wanted to meet women and I wanted to hear about these experiences that women had. And at every recruiting agency, I said, you know, can you do you, do you help women migrate? And everyone was like, no. And then finally somebody's like, what do you think? Do you think we are pimps? It was just the assumption was is that women who wanted to migrate to um, work in the Gulf uh, were what I was told were um, had were not moral or perhaps mm-hmm. had wanted to like go and um, would be exploited either after they migrate or had um, wanted to go to work as sex workers. And so there were these assumptions around the morality of women who wanted to migrate or what would happen to women after they migrated. And so, and this is the reason why um, there's such strict immigration regulations for women who haven't passed, gone through 10th grade is this um, uh, fear they will either be forced into prostitution or that they uh, want to go and work as prostitutes. And that would both would be of course um, negative for India's image, but also, um, you know, a way of trying to prevent tra- like trafficking and other um, issues that arise. So this um, means that women who are over the age of 30 who've passed 10th grade need, in addition to going through immigration regulation, they need permission from their husbands and fa- or fathers to migrate and they need to have a Indian sponsor in the Gulf. And that's then how women are able to travel to work as domestic laborers. Well, thanks. So we've been speaking with Andrea Wright about her book, Between Dreams and Ghosts. Uh, Andrea, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's article segment, we talked to Basilia Zeno, Amherst College, about his new article, The Making of Sex, Boundary Making and the Sectarianization of the Syrian Uprising uh, between 2011-2013. Basilius, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. Thank you. So tell us about this article and what do you, what you mean by sectarianization and you know, what you're trying to accomplish with this piece. Yes. Uh, so first of all, there are many great works that I, I acknowledge that have been already written about the question of sectarianization and sectarianism in general, not just Syria, but also Iraq which actually proliferated after the American occupation of Iraq. And then the, we, we have the uh, uh, destruction of the Iraqi state and proliferation of militias that mobilized uh, based on uh, uh, sectarianized uh, identification. Uh, so we have the literature about Iraq already there and the discussion uh, and with the emergence of Al-Qaeda at the time. Uh, but uh, with the Syrian uprising, we, we saw also proliferation of works in history and political science, uh, more than others. But these uh, basically uh, examine the, how the uh, sectarianism, uh, like between quotations, mm-hmm. uh, became really uh, very visible in terms of mobilization, in terms of rhetoric, and in terms of uh, Islamist groups that basically, if you remember these maps with colors all over all over the place, which uh, were problematically were with, with us like for a long time, we have maps that document basically quote unquote ethnic cleansing in certain areas as if it's the new reality about situation in Syria. So my work is basically is taking a different approach. It's, it's, it's uh, stemming and we can talk about methodology later is from my direct eth- uh, ethnographic observations uh, while I was in, in Syria, I left Syria in July 31st, 2012. And the article actually examined how, how uh, the local actors and supra-local activists reactions to the regime's uh, uh, violence and the regime's master narrative about what, how uh, the, the early on the, the uprising in Syria was framed culminated actually in the activation and the politicization of the category of sect as residual sociality. And I, I pay attention to not using um, static uh, uh, categories using the work of uh, the late uh, Li An Fuji, but uh, like when we say sectarianism, militarism, that doesn't capture actually dynamic and shifting sets of possibilities and agency across really uh, many levels of the uprising. So instead I complement that by really uh, process tracing, meaning making processes in the context of the Syrian uprising between 2011 and 2013 to show how the narrative are around like 
uh, sectarian narrative, sectarian mobilization became constructed and politically fraught over time. That was a, it was a gradual process. It uh, varied from one locality to another locality, but and it wasn't uh, really a static process. Like uh, I, I tried to create a chronology how that evolved over time. And it's interesting because you're pushing back against two very prevalent discourses, one of them being that this sectarianism was always there um, and that's just the way Syrians are. And on the other hand, the idea that Assad himself just simply created sectarianism out of cold cloth. And you're really looking at a much more dynamic process. Yeah, indeed. Uh, I mean, in political science, uh, uh, as you know, like, uh, uh, now, actually, uh, criticizing primordialist or essentializing uh, narrative is like uh, uh, um, like hitting a, a dead horse. Like no one is is, is taking this uh, narrative seriously, at least in political science. But the like the the most dominant approach is basically instrumentalism, which is a variant of uh, constructivism. That hey, this is how basically elites and sectarian entrepreneur manipulated the narrative here and there, manufacture or at, uh, instigated sectarian violence in this uh, uh, area, finance this group, and that's definitely um, uh, describe the mechanism that applies to certain groups. But that doesn't capture really how the variations were even more complicated. And I want to emphasize something here that and that's from my direct observation of mm -hmm. family members, friends, like even a secular leftist liberal uh, minority background activists use at certain time like sectarian discourse, even though they aren't themselves sectarian. And then they backtrack because they, we, we should see that in the context of what was going on around that specific period when they used this narrative. So let's say we are conducting an interview with ex activists in uh, February, 2012. More likely you will get a sectarian narrative, especially after the bombardment of Homs. But when you really interview activists like over time and then see footages that were edited out and other complicated mm -hmm. stories, you will see sometimes like activists basically engage in self-criticism, sometimes in politics of denial. So uh, tracing that uh, shifting narrative over time is also illuminating, I found it like during my interviews and actual reading literature in Arabic. And to go even further there then in terms of your methodology via the, the ethnographic part of this, um, you know, one of the things which is really interesting about the article is that you're able to kind of go behind the scenes a little bit, as you were saying, in terms of which footage gets included in the videos and which doesn't and which slogans are chosen for a particular Friday and which ones aren't. Tell us about that, because it's really a unique and uh, powerful part of this article. Yeah, thank you. This is a very important question, but also it's a it's the reason why actually I, uh, I I chose to study political science after my own displacement. So back at around that time, I was doing my PhD in, in classical archaeology, but I was really active in the during the early days of the uprising. Every Friday, uh, every actually Thursday and Friday later, we used to have meetings in one of the areas in Damascus. I'm not going to to name it, uh, with. Uh, activists who are mostly leftists and some are liberal. So also I want to acknowledge there are variations. You have mm -hmm. uh, Islamist minded, you have liberal, you have apolitical, you have new, so you have all these variations. So my, my core team basically were activists who had this minding. All of us were writers, uh, artists, um, and, and uh, like uh, high education. Uh, that's definitely one was one of the factors. So uh, Facebook around that time, uh, was uh, like for many, many uh, years, it was uh, blocked. We used to use Tor actually and UltraServe to navigate the system without having uh, our IB being discovered by the G It's just simply for reading, to read the news, just uh, this is before the uprising. But then the, there was a, a Facebook page called the Syrian Revolution Against Bashar al-Assad that emerged before the uprising and actually in January and called for a Friday of anger, for Friday of rage against the Syrian regime. That, so I, that was in the context of the, uh, what was going on in Egypt around that time, but before the Syrian uprising. So uh, I remember I, I went there with a friend of mine, it was rainy day right next to the parliament, but with no intention actually to participate because we were scared. But then when we saw like many men in the plain clothes, <laughs> so, we actually went to the uh, to a cafe shop uh, called Kahut Roda, which is very famous there. 
and spend the day and actually looking to other potential activists that didn't know them, but later on we recognized yeah. their name. So um, when no one showed up in Aleppo and Damascus, the Assad regime actually lifted that censorship and people started to have access to Facebook and YouTube and Twitter and other social media. So that was really a, a few weeks, but they give you, a, so that was for, for many of us like who were hopeful, that was a sign of reform. Uh, so that the regime is really is responding to reforms, political reforms that we were aspiring for after the, uh, the Damascus Spring. Uh, however, when the first uh, uh, uprising took, uh, first the protest in, in official protest, because there was another protest uh, that called for, uh, chanted like uh, 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 the Syrian people will not be humiliated, that was in February. And then there was a set in, in solidarity with Libyan people. So all these matters actually set ends as small, but, but give you the vibe of that period of the Arab Spring. So on March 15, a group of activists actually uh, protested in Souq al-Hamidiyya, which is counted as the, uh, the beginning of the Syrian uprising. Uh, so the, the YouTube from uh, that protest was uploaded by this Facebook page and actually circulated internationally. That was the momentum for that Facebook page actually to gain momentum and, and actually had in, an increase, if you follow the number in my article, in terms of how many people actually liked the page. I didn't dare actually to like the page until <laughs> I left until I left Syria, which is in, in, right. in, in July 2012. So I was following it without clicking a like because that was really dangerous for anyone inside the country. So, uh, let, so in the, during the first few months, like uh, I document that the six months, really this, we engage in really furious debate around the process of selecting Friday's slogan. There were many slogans, however, like when you look even at videos, you will find the major slogan and there are many tiny like panels here and there with different slogans. Some are liberal, some are Islamist, some, so all these variations. But what I'm, I'm talking about is which message that has been selected and amplified as the representative of the demands of quote unquote, the Syrian people in general. So, uh, so I examined this mechanism early on. We found this page actually selecting these uh, Fridays without knowing what's the process. Mm -hmm. So there were protests by uh, the uh, uh, Syrian coordination, uh, local Syrian coordination uh, committee. Um, and they, they demanded to have a, a, a vote and in, in that process. And so we started to see actually um, pools, like you, you start to select which one uh, to be uh, the Friday slogan. And really we were engaging in that like as a democratic process, but uh, there were a few incidents uh, I mentioned to them uh, where until the last minute, the outcome was in favor of more nationalistic inclusive uh, slogans, but literally one or two hours before the closing time, uh, the deadline, we found like fake accounts. Like I, I, I have mm. documentation of someone like called Salah Adin. So Salah Din 1, Salah Din 2, Salah Din 3, Salah Din 4. So someone outside the country, mostly in the Gulf, basically was creating fake accounts actually to accelerate, or a group of people to accelerate the process of closing the uh, vote in their favor. And that what happened, for instance, for the Friday of Chal, uh, 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 grandsons of uh, Khaled al-Walid, which was really crucial at, around that time. So uh, my contribution is what's behind the scene. As, as a scholars, almost all of us uh, uh, didn't have access to ethnographic field work inside the country. So when you rely on mining data that is available online, you are basically relying on the finished product, on the outcome, on the discourse as it uh, stands out like in, in its own final uh, product and final form. But we don't see really the power struggle and the symbolic struggle over who had a monopoly over this selection process. And we see like some uh, Fridays, the Fridays of free declaration of jihad in actually January or February, 2012. If you look up actually, on, if you are analyzing the data, you wouldn't find it because it wasn't named like that. Right. They backtracked and call it like self-defense. So if you are, let's say, a, a scholar pays a global note and analyzing the, that, the data, you won't know that 
early on, like when it's still called like a peaceful protest, there was early call for uh, jihad like in, in Syria. This is even before jihadist movement became so proliferated in the country. So let's go back um, and kind of relate this back then to your arguments about sectarianism and how we should understand it in the Syrian context. So what do we learn from your research and from the article about kind of how we should be thinking about it? So uh, the three, I identify at least the three, three points that I wanna uh, highlight. The first one is actually, rather than assuming and describing a conflict, like the sectarian conflict in Iraq or Syria, we as scholars or activists or journalists, we are constituting uh, a, a conflict as such by attributing the adjective sectarian or ethnic before even actually engaging in the process of investigating what was already there. So we are reaching to a conclusion before analyzing the dynamic. And when you are describing that as such, so you are assuming it's the only or the main factors mobilizing uh, people actually to protest against uh, dominant power. So my uh, attempt is to push back against that for and, and, and analyze how, uh, a conflict or social movement or a mobilization can become a sectarian coded or, 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 or uh, ethnicized or sectarianized in, in, in a way that shows the dynamics, the complex dynamics between local and supra-local actors. Sometimes you don't have that influential uh, uh, rule of uh, supra-local actors, but here we are talking about a region that speaks Arabic, that is uh, following, like in Syria, you follow Al Jazeera, Arabic, and you follow all the other media. So for instance, when you talk about Iranian media, it's not influential. Al-Mayadin was established later on, but you don't have that influential like Iranian, like, like if mm -hmm. a, a media outlet is speaking like Persian, you don't, you don't relate to that discourse. But if you are listening to a, a Salafi Sheikh like Al-Araur actually giving a, or preaching or Al-Qardawi, that's really influential because it appeals also to a history of uh, how the, the, the region shares uh, and after like under pan-Arabism, after pan-Arabism. So there are shared culture, shared societies, shared uh, terms and idioms that makes it easier for them to relate and understand the significance of certain message. The third point that I wanna emphasize is uh, building on uh, wood as, as well as the social processes of civil war and sectarian uh, violence. So there is a social and political, we tend to focus on the political, but there are social processes that can shape actually self-identification and identification with other com uh, communities. So uh, th these are the main three contributions beyond the uh, single case study. But also I wanna push uh, against uh, 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 the tendency to reduce the uh, dynamics of sectorization and militarization to actually uh, causal variables and correlations. Because let's say you are disputing a survey and you are asking me how uh, you define yourself as check the box, Sunni, Shia, uh, Alawite, Christian, Greek Orthodox, et cetera. I don't find myself in these categories, right? But you are, if you are enforcing that, mm -hmm. so I will refer to what my background as my family is, but that doesn't actually refer to how I believe and how I acted or how I responded to certain acts or, or, or social phenomena like, uh, like uh, the, the Arab Spring. Uh, so I'm pushing against that actually, and also emphasizing uh, a third category, which is the uh, Ramadiyin or the gray people, which is a tendency, they call them the, um, the silent majority in the literature. Uh, uh, Lisa Wadin did a great job analyzing some aspect of uh, why they had an ambivalent position, but I also uh, added something that's based on my direct observation of family members and, and friends, where you have actually people who supported the uprising early on, but they started actually to backtrack and, or at least say, I have nothing to do with this and call that a, as a crisis. This is a crisis, everyone is bad. And that's uh, stemming from many factors. So first is individual experience of violence, kidnapping, harassment, uh, tension, um, framing on, on media, uh, fear of the regime, but also fear of the, of the unknown. The second factor, actually, there were reports where people lost their friends but the, these, uh, and, and family members, but these reports were completely denied or were missing from the, uh, from the story of the opposition, for instance. 
Uh, one early example, for instance, uh, that was really big one that was in June 2011, when uh, more than 120 uh, soldiers were killed in Jusr Shagur. And for four years, actually, the narrative by the Syrian opposition was that they were executed by the Syrian regime because they refused to shoot at people. But uh, so I met one uh, person at the time, I, I believe this story at the time, but then I met with the, the cousin of one of the victims and he received a final, and he's with the opposition mm -hmm. until now. But he said like, my cousin actually called me and it was actually local armed group from Jester Shagur who actually attacked them. So that early on started to question many stories. Another story was Al-Qashush, uh, the famous singer in Hama. Early on, like a friend of mine from there told me like he was alive. Uh, the, the actual singer is still alive, but the story wasn't relieved, revealed until November 2017 that he was still alive and actually he's a refugee in one of the European countries. So there are many stories that were built up uh, and became part of the myths of the uh, revolution, inspiringness though, uh, uh, that builds on the violence that was committed by the regime and local grievances, but uh, they, they, they built upon also a politics of denial. At the same time. It was incredibly interesting, and there's so much rich material in this article and in the book I know you're working on. And uh, thank you so much for taking your thank time you. to talk with us about this article just published by Nations and Nationalism. Uh, we're talking to Basilia Zeno. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Appreciate it. This is the Middle East Political Science Podcast. I'm Mark Lynch, and on this week's topical segment, we're joined by Renad Mansour, the director of the Iraq Initiative at Chatham House, just back from Baghdad. Uh, Renad, thanks for joining us. Hi, Mark. It's good to be with you. So tell us a little bit about where we are with uh, Iraqi politics at this point, uh, this seemingly endless process of government formation, political stagnation. What, what, where are we right now in terms of Iraqi politics? Well, right now, uh, we're at a stalemate. Um, as, as we've known, every election in Iraq uh, since 2005 has produced months and months and months of horse trading, political wrangling, competition for power uh, between the different sides. Um, and I think we need to first you know, begin of how we got here um, to try and explain, you know, try and think about why we're at the stalemate and what's different this time and what's the same uh, as, as, as previous uh, processes. So this election, there was a few things different about this election. First of all, it was called early. So this was in response to mass protests from October 2019 and the resignation of the then prime minister, Adel Abdel Mehdi, uh, and the declaration of early elections. Um, and, and when the elections actually took place, of course, the voter turnout was very low and many Iraqis didn't believe in it, but the, from the results, there were some surprises. And perhaps the biggest surprise was the big, big victory by the Sajrists. Uh, the Sajrists led by, you know, Shia cleric, populist cleric Muqlad al-Sadr, someone well known uh, as being an influential armed leader, religious leader, political leader since 2003 in Iraq. Uh, very much, you know, out, you know, out competing and out, you know, being victorious over his opponents, in particular, the other Shi'i parties uh, link, you know, the popular mobilization forces who have, you know, close relations with, with, with Iran, as well as Nuri al-Maliki. So everyone thought that, wow, the Sajrists have done so well. And they, they also developed an alliance bringing together the Kurdistan Democratic Party, the Kurds in, in parts, you know, who had, the KDP had represented most of the Kurdish vote, and also bringing together the Sunni, the two main Sunni blocs, which were united, Khamis al-Khanjar and Muhammad al-Halbusi. So on paper, it seemed that this government formation was going to just drive through seamlessly. They had the numbers. But what we've learned in Iraq is that elections and the results of elections are only part of the story in terms of forming government. And where the Sajrists had very clearly the numbers uh, to pursue their government and, and what this alliance with the Kurds, Sunnis and the Sajrists were, they lacked power in other arenas. Uh, they lacked power when it came to violence. And we saw the other side very effectively using violence. If you remember the assassination attempts on the prime minister, attacks against the KDP, Halbusi homes, bases, uh, protests storming the green zone. Violence was used by the other side to say, hang on, we may have lost votes, but we still have a seat at the table. 
another place where the other side used its 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 power was in the judiciary. You know, the the judiciary in Iraq is not independent. It's is is it's, it's very politicized and weaponized in this case. Um, and and certain rulings came down that really hurt the Sajrists and their attempt to take over uh, Iraqi politics. Um, and finally, I think we saw more and more of Iran's intervention uh, through this process when it became clear the Sajrists were very close to forming their government. So. I bring these examples up just to say that that initial surprise and, you know, anyone who was crunching the numbers initially to say, wow, this is going to be very easy. I think we've learned a lot about what the actual political system in Iraq looks like and why it is that today we're at a stalemate where the Speaker of Parliament has been has been selected, but we have yet to know who the president or prime minister will be, let alone the ministries uh, after that. So there, there was some talk um, that uh, that just this past Saturday there was going to be this decisive vote, which would finally break the stalemate. Didn't happen. So you were there observing, talking to people. What is the sense of where we go now? It's still hard to 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 know. I think. The big debate is whether Muqtada al-Sadr's idea of a majoritarian government, which effectively means a government that excludes Maliki and some of the pro, uh, some of the Iran allied PMF, whether that system will take over or whether the consensus politics system, uh, which was created in Iraq after three will continue to muddle through. Um, I think most people, are now placing sort of their, their, their bets on the consensus government continuing. And I think, as I say, the reason for that is where you lose, where a side may have lost in an election, that doesn't necessarily mean that it no longer has a seat at the table. And a lot of these losing, losing sides have proven quite capable. I'll give you one example in the judiciary. So although the Sajjus had a majority, the other side, the losing side was able to find the law and, and create a new system in the parliament based on that law so that you needed two thirds quorum in parliament to push through the presidential election. Effectively, what this meant was that the, the clear majority government could not push through their presidential candidate because they don't have enough, they don't have a supermajority. And so the presidential election has to now be a supermajority, which in effect means that it has to be decided behind closed doors. And that's exactly what the losing side was looking for, not to have the parliament dictate terms, but to have the big ruling parties come together and divide the state coffers, as we've seen since 2003. So to answer your question, then, whoever becomes president, whether it's the incumbent Baram Saleh, who, who has now allied himself with some of the losing sides uh, at the moment, or the KDP's candidate, which, you know, it, you know, we'll, we'll have to see what's decided behind closed doors. The PUK has traditionally held, the PUK being the smaller party now in Kurdistan, it's having a leadership crisis, it's quite weak mm -hmm. these days, still wants to hold on to that post because it's part of that post to the compromise. The KDP sensing an opportunity to get even more power, want to take over that post and remove the current president. So that's where we are right now. Uh, and, and really we're just waiting for all the sides to come to some kind of compromise. So I guess one question to ask, uh, given that this has been going on for so long is, you know, does it matter that Iraq doesn't have a government? Uh, certainly uh, outside players like the United States and the Gulf seem quite happy with the current prime minister, Kadhimi, um, and the, the governance such as it is doesn't seem to be much affected by it. So what does it matter? I think that's a very good question. And, you know, I've been uh, several times during this process to Baghdad. I've met with the, the you know, the president, prime minister, their teams, uh, there is an argument to say, let that chaos continue because the government is still functioning and they both are very happy in their acting capacity because both of them really do feel that they're on the way out. And so this is a way for them to stay in, in, in power. Even more important to this, what we've learned about the Iraqi political system, and again, to answer whether it matters, is that what happens on the surface, who the president is, who the prime minister is, doesn't really matter that much. The political parties have taken over the entire civil service, many of the institutions of the state. And so things will continue notwithstanding the chaos on top. 
But I'll tell you why it matters. Because what we've seen since 2003 in Iraq are cycles of conflict, right? Every US president has declared some kind of mission accomplished, some kind of military uh, defeat uh, in Iraq. And yet that conflict tends to always spring back up. And that's because until now in Iraq, those victories have often been military victories, right? You can remove the Saddam Hussein Ba'athist regime. You could remove ISIS from its territorial grip and on, 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 on large parts of Iraq. But how do you actually address the roots of the problem? And I think what's playing out in the challenges in this government formation and the challenges of these parties, A, trying to represent the streets, but also trying to create stability in government is the root of the problem. It is a political problem, not a military problem. The roots of all these conflicts are socioeconomic and political. And so it does matter because while this system can muddle through throughout, it will continue to face shocks. And you know, in many parts of Iraq we see now, conflict is on the horizon uh, very clearly. And it's these cycles and, and based on these cycles, we should expect conflict uh, at some point. We don't know what it may look like, the way it might erupt, but there has yet to be a political solution for how post-2003 Iraq should be governed and how it should represent its people. Now, you've written elsewhere about the um, kind of what you mentioned a moment ago about the takeover of state institutions by the political parties. Um, and a little bit ago, you mentioned that uh, some of the Iran-aligned uh, popular mobilization forces um, are on the other side, the, the losing side of the elections. What does all of this mean for, uh, you know, the way that Iran and its allies in, 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 in Iraq um, are navigating this current political situation um, and this institutional gridlock? Well, I think it's important to note that this is the first government formation where Iran doesn't have Qasem Stemani. Qasem uh, Soleimani being assassinated by the U.S. Mm -hmm. in, in, in January 2020, um, which means that it's almost a different system. His replacement, Qa'ani, uh, doesn't do things in the same way that Soleimani would. He's not uh, directly calling, interfering, using very informal lines with, with the leadership, but he's trying to give some space. Um, so to, to the different sides, he's trying, he's pursuing a much more institutional uh, relationship with Iraq. He has a bigger vision there that he's trying to pursue, which is moving, departing from, diverging from the Stemani tactics, less of that interference. Yet, of course, Iran is still, you know, the most powerful external actor in Iraq. And you can see that very clearly. Iran has its allies, Nuri al-Maliki, representing a very important ally for Iran. And again, although these groups have lost, the, the PMF groups have lost votes. They have very clearly in the process of government formation made their claim to government, to, the, to, to, to what they deserve. And that's because where they have lost political power, they have maintained coercive power. They have maintained economic power and critically also judicial power. So when everyone comes to the table, the Sajrists show their hands and the others will show their hands and they'll all divide the state coffers. That's how Iran works. Iran, unlike uh, other external powers, doesn't put all of their eggs in, in one basket, doesn't only rely on one individual, but is able to have great uh, influence over several parts of state and non-state and the blurred lines in between that we see in Iraq. So suppose that um, somehow these obstacles are overcome and the Sadrists do manage to form a government, would they be able to do anything about this, uh, in, this state capture uh, by, the, by these various uh, extra state forces? Well, I, I think that will be difficult. I think the Sadrists' main competition is actually Nuri al-Maliki. That's the person who they're most worried about because if you look at how the Iraqi state has developed over, you know, since 2003, basically, that state capture, what it means is a competition for almost a thousand senior civil servants across, right? Iraq is a very wealthy state. We're talking about hundreds of billions uh, of, of, of opportunities in corruption every year. And the key to that isn't to have a prime minister or a president, is to have the director general of contracting in the Ministry of Oil or other ministries. So the Sudrists are more, you know, have pushed back on what was known as the Maliki deep state previously, this deep state, by 
inserting their own people into this. So moving forward, if they are to form a government, which I still think will be a consensus government, I would tend not to predict as much as possible in these things, but I think this is something that I've been saying, and, and many have been saying from the start, that consensus is always the name of the game. The Sudras will continue its focus of how do we take more and more of that away from Maliki in particular, but perhaps some of these other uh, armed actors, which are very much under Maliki's wing in any case. And that becomes their priority. Can we have more civil servants across? But also, can we have more access to the security sector where we have lost a bit of course of capital or to the judiciary, which has been mobilized against us in, in our attempts to create a majority government? These these are the kind of, I think, priorities of the Sudjurists moving forward after the government is formed. One last question. Uh, you started your, your story about these elections with the, the 2019 uh, popular uprisings and mass mobilization, and they seem to have largely dropped out of these political games. Um, what are the prospects that uh, this could re-emerge as a factor in Iraqi politics? Certainly the street well, isn't getting any happier. Yes, exactly. Um, and, you know, I, we were just in Baghdad. We did a, several roundtables bringing together youth. You know, Iraq has a very young population, two thirds under 25, many of them no longer getting, you know, the jobs. Most of the jobs come from this, the, the government. And so you have huge youth unemployment and many issues. What they're calling demographic pressure will continue to, you know, force uh, itself onto the system. First of all, something I, I didn't mention in our in our talk so far was the relative surprising success of protest party uh, protest parties parties emerging from those those protests. Uh, one, you know, Imtidad, new, others, New Generation. These groups uh, about you you have several dozens MPs representing these protest parties, and then some independent MPs who have been elected based on the same kind of like-minded of these protesters. The challenge for them has been that, first of all, they're not united, and second of all, they're at the behest of the ruling elite, which is very easy, clearly dividing and conquering, and so you don't have a strong base for protest-minded parties. There was an argument after this success that maybe more people should have voted because the voter turnout was very low. There's, you know, the official numbers you say, I mean, most people would say it's around, around the 20s percent, which is very low. And it's by far the, the, the lowest turnout since 2003. And that number continues to decline every election. The experience of these MPs and their ability to succeed will be key to the next election. If they don't succeed, if they don't unite, it is hard to say whether they will get more votes or whether people will, will vote. On the street, I think a lot of Iraqis had hopes for 2019, what they called, you know, Tishreen and, and what they called their, their, their revolution. And it was squashed. It was completely squashed, not just by one side, but by the ruling elite um, as, a, as, a to as a whole. It wasn't just these rogue militias. It was a strategic, coherent campaign of not just removing protesters from squares, but assassinating specific mobilizers who before they could mobilize to the streets. So many Iraqis now who were part of those movements feel despair. They feel like they tried and they failed. And they also live in fear if they still live there. Many have evacuated to the Kurdistan region and elsewhere. So currently, the conversation is what does Tishreen, what does protest look like in the future? And the biggest fear, and the, but the biggest conversation, is that it might not be as peaceful as, as, as before. Protesters might now realize that actually this is an armed struggle and that, that this is, there's another way to do this. But at the moment, it's hard to see something like October 2019 because in October 2019, Iraq's elite were surprised. They were caught off guard and they didn't have a response to the mass mobilizations. In the years since, they have developed a coercive apparatus that has has learned how to stop the mobilization of protests before they hit the streets and certainly learned how to clear streets using that, that precedent of the precedent of force killing uh, in, in Baghdad and Southern Iraq in particular. Well, thank you uh, so much for stopping by and, uh, and filling us in on your experiences in Iraq. Uh, it's always good to talk to you, Renaud. Thank you.
Thank you so much for having me again, Mark. This has been very, this is fascinating. Mm-hmm.